The U.S. Supreme Court recently issued two copyright-related decisions on the same day. That's rare. One of our lawyers even called it Copyright Day. We have a panel representing Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative here to talk about what these decisions mean for copyright holders and applicants and litigants. Maybe changes in strategy are in order. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks, Women in IP. The U.S. Supreme Court tackled questions relating to copyright applications versus copyright registrations in Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corporation v. WallStreet.com. In a separate case, Ramini Street v. Oracle, the court ruled on how costs are measured in copyright litigation. We'll talk about both these decisions with our panel. Jessica Bradley has more than 10 years of experience litigating trademark, trade dress, false advertising, unfair competition, dilution, and copyright cases. She also counsels clients on trademark clearance, prosecution, and enforcement, including representing clients before the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Anna Raymer works with clients to design and implement worldwide trademark protection programs, strengthen their IP portfolios, and resolve domestic and international trademark disputes. Meredith Wilkes co-leads the firm's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She is a lead trial lawyer that has focused on high-stakes trademark, trade dress, trade secret, false advertising, and designed patent litigation for global brands in federal and state courts throughout the U.S. for more than 20 years. Meredith, Anna, Jessica, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Meredith, let's go to you first. Um, I don't know who might keep track of these things, and I know that these cases don't always fall into neat categories or, or boxes, but it seems like the Supreme Court recently has heard more intellectual property-related cases than it historically has. Is that correct, or am I imagining it? Because I've been accused of imagining things. So, But have you noticed, <laughs> is, the, is the docket a little, a little more crowded with IP matters than it has been historically? Um, No, I don't think you're imagining things at all, Dave. I think that's exactly right. If we look back, even just over the last five years or so, I think we're seeing an uptick in IP cases in front of the Supreme Court. I'm thinking about maybe a trend starting around 2014, 2015 with uh, the Lexamark and the Palm Wonderful decisions, Mm -hmm. um, B&B Hargis recently, Hannah Financial, Mattel versus Tom. And and even in the last couple of years, um, we had Patent Day in the United States Supreme Court with Oil States and the SAS Institute, the SAS Institute. Uh, being argued, right? right. Same no, day. I love it. That's right. That's and right. and this week we had Copyright Day in the Supreme Court with two copyright decisions being handed down in the same day, which I don't think's happened in about a hundred years. So I don't think you're imagining anything at all. I think we're seeing some more and more IP cases in front of the Supreme Court. Now, why is that? Is it just I don't like the word coincidence, but is there just a backlog of these types of cases that the court's finally thinking we got to start hearing these things? Or is it because the changing nature of commerce in the 21st century, a lot of business and therefore legal matters are IP related and we're just seeing the manifestation of that at the high court? What do you think? Well, I have two answers to that question. The IP law nerd in me says these IP cases are so cool that they're getting the court's attention and that's why the court wants to weigh in on it. Um, But I don't know that that's 100% accurate. What I think Mm. we're seeing, and the decisions this week shore that up for me, is that the IP cases that the court is taking have very little to do with just the underlying IP subject matter and are touching upon bigger issues. So you talked in, in Uh, a couple of your podcasts with our PTAB folks about Mm -hmm. Chevron deference leading to the SAS Institute decision. Um, Here, I think we're seeing trends on statutory construction. 
So I think it's bigger picture issues that are hitting IP cases. Okay, you mentioned statutory construction, and I think I know where you're going with this because of the two cases we're going to talk about today. But define for us briefly, if you could, what is statutory construction? Sure. It's the court's interpretation of what the words mean in the statute. And both of the cases that we're going to talk about today touch upon different philosophies or, or different ways to interpret the words as they appear on the page. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the first of those two cases. We'll go to Anna first. Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corporation v. WallStreet.com. This is about the copyright applications and registrations process, correct? Just give us some background. Tell us how this case evolved. That's right, Dave. Um, in Fourth Estate, you had a news organization that had licensed its articles to websites. And when one of those licensees continued to use the articles after the license was canceled, Fourth Estate sued for copyright infringement. By the time when it filed that suit, Fourth Estate had only filed copyright applications to register the articles. It didn't have any registrations yet. Mm -hmm. So when the district court looked at that, it dismissed the case under Section 411A of the Copyright Act, finding that you really have to have a copyright registration in order to sue for infringement. So after the 11th Circuit agreed, the case was taken by the Supreme Court and we now have a decision delivered by Justice Ginsburg, and it was unanimous. The Supreme Court holding that a copyright claimant does have to wait until the Copyright Office registers the copyright before it institutes an infringement suit. Okay. And here what the court found was that given the way the word registration is used in the rest of the, the section, as well as in other parts of the Copyright Act, that the real meaning had to be that the a registration had issued, not that you had just applied for a copyright registration. And that you know, Congress didn't mean to give multiple meanings to the word registration mm -hmm. throughout the act, so that it was really the only reading that made sense in the context of the statute. Okay. Okay. In the context of the statute. Well, let's turn this to Jessica for a second. What did somebody do wrong here, I guess? what what is the court trying to prevent or discourage moving forward with this decision? It wasn't any particularly that anyone did anything wrong. It was more so that courts across the country essentially had split over what this provision in Section 411A, that, that registration has been made, what that actually meant in terms of filing an application or did you need a registration? Some courts said that it was fine if you filed an application with the required deposit and mm -hmm. fee and you can move forward. Mm -hmm. And other courts said, no, you had to have the actual registration or your registration had to have been refused. So copyright owners across the country essentially were left with an open question as to when and how can I actually um, start my, my action for copyright infringement? And you know, the, the answer depended on where in the country you were. So the Supreme Court was essentially just resolving that, that split among the, the courts. So the interpretation was, was consistent across the board. Okay. Now let's stay with Jessica. These things can take time sometimes. You know, you apply for copyright in terms of the period from when the application is made to when you might be approved for registration, if I'm using the right terminology. How does an applicant protect himself or herself in the meantime? if just applying doesn't protect you in this case? So, you know, that was really what a lot of the um, amicus briefs that were submitted centered on. And, and that's really uh, was a, a central question. It was almost 
like a, a practical issue versus, you know, what does the, the statute actually mean? What was Congress's intention? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, copyright owners and people that actually work in this space, you know, it could take, I think, as, as of the time of the Supreme Court decision, um, the average processing time for just a, a normal electronic application was seven months. Seven if you go months. on the, the yeah, if you go on the copyright office website now, they're saying you know an average of six months, but it could be two to ten months. And that if there actually has to be uh, correspondence with a copyright owner, you know, there's questions about the application. It could take up to fifteen months. And uh, interestingly enough, Fourth Estate's copyright application, as of the time it filed its petition for cert with the Supreme Court have been pending for 19 months. 19 months. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, and it, it seemed like looking back on it, they made some procedural mistakes and, and that delayed it. But that amount of time, it could be significant. But I think the Supreme Court's view was is that those time processing lags were more as a result of budgetary constraints. It wasn't something that the court should cure. Oh. It was something that it was going to be within Congress's role to cure. As far as other remedies available to a copyright owner, both the court's opinion and uh, Wall Street's brief brought up the availability of special handling, which mm -hmm. essentially is a way to get expedited processing of your application. Okay. Um, it does come with a bit of a hefty price tag. It's uh, an additional $800 fee right. per copyright claim. Mm -hmm. And also... The copyright office makes no guarantee that it will actually within process that application with any certain time frame. It says it will make its best yeah. efforts to do it within this, five days. This this leaves a an applicant in a precarious position. It sounds like, but but you, at least there there is an option or or or, or the, the opportunity to fast track this sort of. But even then, there's no guarantee. Is what you're saying? Yeah, and I think they, they don't even now offer a guarantee. And I think the issue is going to be that given this court's, given the Supreme Court's decision, you're going to see an uptick in special handling. Mm. And right now it's, you know, we're going to make every best effort to process it within five days. If, you know, it doubles or triples the amount of people that are now applying for special handling, you're going to be left with a definite issue well, there. I was gonna, you're, you might have the same problem. Interestingly, if suddenly everybody's rushing to do the expedited handling or special handling, there's going to be a logjam there too, or at least potentially. Let's go back to Anna for a second. Okay, it sounds like this is a game-changing situation, suddenly. How do you advise or counsel clients moving forward after this position? The conservative approach, and depending on what jurisdiction you've been in, has been to obtain a registration, uh, if possible, before filing suit, because this was a split between the circuits. So in, in that way, we continue to advise clients to seek to register early, consider the special handling that Jessica was just talking about. You know, at times that can be um, a way to go. We'll see whether there is going to be this delay that Jessica mentions and also can be an issue if the client has lots of registrations that need to be approved before filing litigation, depending on what the action is about. Another thing the court mentioned, too, was this idea of pre-registration that's available. It's only in specific limited circumstances, but that is also something to consider if that criteria is met by the copyright claimant. It's called pre-registration? 
That's right. And it, it only involves really specific um, circumstances. And that's when you have a situation like a, a movie that's about to be released. It's unpublished okay. at the moment, but it's being prepared for commercial distribution or musical work or video game, a specific class of types of copyrights. And the concern there is in types of works that there has been a history of pre-release infringement okay. and that was specifically provided for in a statute. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, let's go over to the other case. Ramini Street v. Oracle. Meredith, this was about how costs are measured in copyright litigation. Tell us what happened here. Well, that's right, Dave. There's no question here about copyright ownership or the validity of the registrations. Here, the question before the court is, what happens when you win? Yeah. <laughs> what, what to the victor must go the spoils, right? Sure, well, sure. What are the spoils? Section 505 of the copyright statute allows recovery for, quote, full costs mm-hmm. and attorney's fees, and, mm-hmm. and that's within the court's discretion. And uh, in this case, Oracle had recovered in excess of $35 million in damages for copyright infringement, in excess of $14 million in damages for other uh, state claims that it had prevailed upon. And then it also recovered $28 million, $28.5 million in attorney's fees, as well as $4.95 million in costs that on appeal got reduced down to $3.4 million. But in addition, (laughs) they also recovered- It wasn't all? Wow. No, no, but wait, there's more. It's <laughs> agonizing. Oh. The $12.8 million uh, for litigation expenses, and that was found to include expert witness fees and e-discovery fees and jury consulting fees. And so the, the question before the court was, you know, whether the $12.8 million in these other litigation expenses were recoverable costs under the copyright statute. In, in terms of recovering fees of, of litigation, is copyright law, is it different than in other areas of the law, Meredith? Is this special somehow in terms of what you can ask for, for reimbursement of? I think the court um, points out in the, the opinion that there are probably hundreds of statutory provisions that permit the recovery of costs or fees under different, very specific circumstances. But one thing that litigants are used to is this idea called the American rule, that ordinarily you don't get fees or costs unless there's a statutory provision that allows for it and that allows very specifically for it. And costs in this case have been specifically defined by other areas of the United States Code. And there are typically um, a handful of well-recognized costs that are available to a prevailing party. But the idea of this $12.8 million for other litigation expenses was a newly advanced theory in this case and not one that was typically recoverable under the other parts of the code that speak to what costs are, what recoverable costs are in a litigation. Okay. Now, it sounds like this has been reasonably well-defined. Let's go to Anna. On what basis might have lower courts awarded costs that didn't fall under the established, I guess there are six categories in the general federal cost statute. What would make a lower court say, well, maybe it doesn't fit in one of those categories, but we're going to award that anyway. Why would they think that? They would think it if the statutes actually specifically provided for those other costs. So even within the Copyright Act, they do provide for the additional costs of attorney's fees. So the court really focused on that and reasoned that Congress could have specifically identified litigation expenses outside of those six categories if it meant to expand the scope of the cost statute. 
And that's what it did in specifying that attorney's fees are recoverable under the Copyright Act. Mm-hmm. Um, but absent that express authority, courts can't award litigation expenses outside of the specific categories. And like Meredith mentioned, we were talking about these types of additional costs that are so significant here over $12 million and things like expert witnesses and e-discovery. It's really significant costs and important to understand whether those are included in what's recoverable. We hear about they're entitled to full costs. So over to Jessica, does this come down to how the word full is interpreted then? I'd say it really uh, more so came down to how costs are interpreted because the court, with regards to the word full, the court held that full was just a term of quantity. It was an adjective that modified and didn't change the meaning of the word costs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, picking up on what Meredith was talking about, there's precedent that it's not in the statute. If there is an express authority in the statute that courts can award litigation expenses other than what is already specified, you know, in the six categories in the general cost statute. The court pointed out that Oracle's meaning of, of full costs, including all litigation expenditures, um, would make the second sentence of Section 505 that Anna mentioned that provides for attorney costs, that it would make that redundant. So full just meant you got to award the full amount. It wasn't anything more than that. I see. I see. Let's look to the future. In getting ready to record this program, I ran across a client alert that your group's working on. Uh, Meredith, you wrote that the Romini decision does not bode well for the USPTO, that's the United States Patent and Trademark Office, in Iancu v. NatQuest. Talk about that for a moment. What are you uh, getting at? So if I sit here with my crystal ball. (laughs) 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 You you haven't been wrong yet. We've been doing this for a year and a half. You're always right. The check is in the mail, Dave. Thank Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) If I I look into my crystal ball and I'm sitting here with this fourth estate opinion and this Rimini Street opinion authored by two Supreme Court justices who are on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum Mm -hmm. um, coming to the same conclusion that we engage in strict statutory interpretation here. Words mean what what they say, and we are not going to start awarding costs or fees unless there's a statute that specifically says that that particular type of monetary recovery is allowed. I I think about that and I look at this this Nanquist-Ianku case and What's involved there is essentially a question of whether the, the phrase all expenses means attorney's fees. I see. There's a circuit split right now, and the United States Supreme Court has granted cert here in this Nanquest case to resolve a circuit split between the Fourth Circuit and the Federal Circuit on this issue involving essentially analogous provisions under the Patent Act and the Trademark Act that say that uh, an unhappy applicant has two options to appeal a decision of an examiner. They can either go into the district court where they'll be able to introduce new evidence or they can go straight up to the federal circuit. But if they go into the district court, there's a statutory provision that says that regardless of the outcome, they have to pay all expenses as a result of the proceeding. And for 100 years, that just meant typical costs and expenses that we think about. It didn't mean attorney's fees. But over the last several years... Uh, the USPTO has been trying to recover attorney's fees under that provision. And so now that is the issue that the court is is going to be deciding. Does all expenses mean attorney's fees? And in our view, if we read these two opinions and, and the Federal Circuit's decision and factor in the American rule, the answer to that should be no. No. 
Okay. Did you say the USPTO is trying to recover fees? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Is is that typical? I mean, part of the federal government tries to recover its attorney's fees from someone bringing a case. Does that happen? It's a recent development and something that um, during or oral argument in the Nanquest decision from the federal circuit, um, a couple of the judges took issue with the um, USPTO doing so, saying, listen, you know, for a uh, hundred years, you weren't trying to seek any type of recovery yeah. for attorney's fees. So it, clearly no one was thinking that all expenses meant attorney's fees. And we recently published an alert on this issue on the trademark side out of the Fourth Circuit, where you had an unhappy applicant challenge an examiner's decision and win. The examiner got it wrong. Right, <laughs> and the court right. appeals found that the examiner got it wrong, that their mark was actually protectable. It wasn't generic. And in exchange for, for that great victory, they got to pay only $50,000 in what the PTO approximated it, its attorney's fees. So they, they won and they still had to pay attorney fees. <laughs> Success at a cost. Who, yes, who writes these rules? <laughs> Jeez. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, that, okay. that's right. You can imagine the chilling effect this would have on applicants trying yes. to decide what way to challenge, you know, a patent examiner or a trademark examiner. You know, every time we do one of these with you guys, there's always one jaw-dropping moment for me. And I think we're, we're almost done, but it happened. You, you managed, you did it again, Meredith. You surprised me right there. It's like, yeah, so the USPTO is suing for, okay, great. Let's change focus for the last couple of minutes. Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative is thriving based on everything I'm observing and hearing. This is really a question for all of you, but let's start with Meredith. What's coming up for Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative over the next couple of months? Always so excited to hear such great feedback and, and always really excited to talk about what's happening for women in IP. Dave, if you will have us, we would be delighted to come back and, and do a few more podcasts sure. with you. Yes. Um, we, right, we kicked off the year with our Section 101 discussion, and that's going to continue to unwind through the, the patent office and, and through the courts. So having a follow-on discussion now that uh, part two of Susan and Dr. Patricia's articles come out, oh, yeah. I think would be a, a, a great, great ad. Mm -hmm. um, as you and I have talked about, we've got a scandalous trademark decision that will be coming out at some point in 2019. So our women in IP would be delighted to talk about the Supreme Court's uh, ruling on that case. You had me and, at scandalous. Um, will, you, uh, will you give me an exclusive? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm sure you will. Law three six, you'll have it before I even know about it. All right, fine. <laughs> I also understand that the speaker series that you put on remains very popular. It is, and we're really, really excited about the program lineup that we have for 2019. I'll let Anna and Jess talk about that in a little bit more detail. Sure. So our first upcoming part of the speaker series is our brand update in the end of March in Atlanta. Okay. We then have our annual View from the Top, which is a leadership program. This year it's going to be in New York, and that's in June. And then we also have in October in our Los Angeles office an update on trade secrets law. So what happens? You bring in outside speakers, or are there Jones Day lawyers talking, or a combination, or what do people hear? That's right. We have a combination for... Our update on um, trademark law, we have a number of speakers slated that are in-house counsel, and that's going to be combined with our very own Meredith Wilkes and Carrie Kajowski. And then the same for the other programs. We have both Jones Day speakers as well as folks from the outside legal community, judges, and in-house counsel. Terrific. Well, I get good feedback all the time. You're, you're doing terrific work there. And uh, 
I think uh, this one of you know, Jones Day has a lot of initiatives similar to this throughout the firm. But I'm, I never have heard anything but glowing reviews for the programs you guys put on. So nice work and keep it up. We're looking forward to hearing how everything goes. Meredith, Anna, Jessica, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Right, take care. For more information on Jones Day's intellectual property practice, go to the practice page at jonesday.com. There you'll find lots of information about the practice, including bios on Jessica Bradley, Anna Ramier, and self-proclaimed, self-identified IP nerd Meredith Wilkes. Hey, she said it, I didn't. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher. You've been listening to Jones Day Talks, Women in IP. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.